I'm going to go right to the text today as we get into the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says these words, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I'm excited about that one. Amen. Then we who are alive, it gets better. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Amen. Jesus is coming. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And this is the reading of God's word. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that in this moment... We have a blessed assurance in your coming again. Our hope, Lord, is in you. And our eyes are on you. And our hearts, though they wander and though they stray at times, our hearts are found at home in you. And I pray for every person that is hearing me speak tonight that their ears will be open not to hear the words of man, but to hear the words of God. And I pray that the church will see Jesus, him and him only. In his mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you across our campuses. Have a seat. Today's message, Jesus is coming, part three. And the title is... Yeah, the title is, This Changes Everything. How many know that the coming of Jesus changes everything? Okay, so our nation has just gone through a, once again, another highly contentious election season. Uh, it is spoken. It has, uh, I think, as so, so far, come to a conclusion. We'll see how this moves forward anyway. Uh, I am, I'm imagining and I'm actually really hoping that there are people today who are here and you're um, sad about the result and you're, you're wondering what, how, how could this happen and, and you may be mad and you might be looking for answers. And then I, I hope and I pray that there are people here today and you're thrilled with the result and you're like thinking that heaven's coming to earth now because the right person was elected and the wrong person was not elected. I hope that both people are here today because here's what I have to say about this. I wrote this message this week during the uh, you know, waiting game that we all went through for who was going to win the election. And then the resolve happened just now and it's recent. And here's the best part. Nothing changes with God's eternal calendar. Yeah. Woo! The, the election has no bearing on what I am about to tell you. What I'm about to tell you is what God in Christ Jesus has told us 
and it's going to happen, and it is the most important day of the universe when Jesus returns. Now, I don't know if there's anybody here, a little bit of levity today to get this message started. How many of you, you liked yourself some peanuts? The cartoon, peanuts, peanuts. Did I say that clearly? That's the word you want to make sure you, you intonate clearly. All right, for obvious, peanuts. There we go, okay, saved by the cartoon, okay. Well, Linus and Lucy are having a conversation, raining outside, and they're having a conversation, and, and Lucy says to Linus, boy, look at it rain, what if, the, what if it floods the whole world? To which Linus replies, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And then Lucy responds, you've taken a great load off my mind. To which Linus responds, sound theology has a way of doing that. <laughs> I like that cartoon. I don't know about you. I like that cartoon. Uh, sound theology. Let, let, let me just say it a little bit more clearly. When we know what the Bible says, our hearts can live at peace. When we know that Jesus is in charge, we don't get anxious with who may or may not be in the Oval Office, or in the Senate, or in the Governor's Mansion. See, this applies top to bottom. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Leaders rise, leaders fall. Jesus is still Lord of all. And so today I want to give you um, some things about the second coming that we haven't addressed so far in this series. But this is part three of this series, and, and I, I want to address an area of the second coming that we haven't addressed so far. We have talked about what to look for to understand when Jesus is coming. But I've never actually, I haven't up to this point in the series, taught you what it means. What does it mean for us that Jesus is coming? How now should we live? And really, that's the core of the blessed hope for the church. It's not about knowing times and seasons. It's not about knowing dates. It's not about knowing timelines. It's about what does it mean for us as the followers of Jesus that this is a thing that's going to happen. And so today I have a pastoral concern for you, and I hope that by the time we are done with this message, your heart is more thrilled with the second coming of Jesus than ever before. Here's what I want to say. I want you to write it down. What I think about will affect how I feel, just like in that Peanuts cartoon. Peanuts cartoon. What I think about will affect how I feel. Now our minds have been up occupied in 2020, yes? That's like the understatement of the year. We're given endless things to worry about and occupy our minds, and I am burdened with this message because it's so important that we wrap our minds around what God wants us to think about in a country that is filled with uh, strife and contentious arguments over political policy, in a country that is filled with a pandemic and even arguments about the severity of that in a country that is filled with so many tense issues. Our minds are drawn into all of these areas that we could get so hopelessly downcast. We could say, like the psalmist, 
Why are you so downcast, O my soul? 2020 is given that to us. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? But at the very next line, the psalmist says, put your hope in God. You need to speak to your soul to put its hope not in this world or in you or in your friends or in the nation, to put your hope in God. And this is what the Bible is for. This is what the scriptures are for. They wrap our minds around not what's happening on the news channel, but what's happening in the cosmic world that is still to be revealed at the last day. So I want to give you some things to think about. And, th and, and Paul in this passage gives us some pastoral concerns about what does it mean to believe that Jesus is coming. Number one, the return of Christ means, number one, we grieve hopefully. We grieve hopefully. Put your hope in God. The second coming of Jesus Christ means that we have a hope no matter how hard right now might seem. Now here's what he says, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now by saying asleep here, he means those who have died. By the way, the Bible always refers to death as sleep. Isn't that interesting? Because here's what the Bible is kind of subtly telling us about death. It's not permanent. It's just a nap. Even when bad people die, they're just taking a nap. Even when unbelievers die, good people die. Everybody's just taking a nap. There's coming a day, Jesus said, when the righteous and the unrighteous will hear his voice and will rise again. The righteous will go to everlasting life and the unrighteous will go to everlasting death. So when he's talking about sleep, he's talking about death. How do we approach death? He says, listen, I want to tell you about people who have died. And the Thessalonians were a first century church in the, in the Roman province of Thessalonica, Roman city of Thessalonica, and they were struggling because they were watching their friends and their loved ones die, like we do. But, but it was more intense back then than it is now. Like, like the average life expectancy back then was about 45. And so they were dying much younger than we are. They didn't live nearly as long as we do. And so they had plagues, they had pestilence, they had no modern medicine, they had no hospitals, they had no care, they had no hygiene practice. So you have to think about this. Uh, they were surrounded by death. We've tasted death, they were surrounded by death. And the church, on top of that, the church that Paul is writing to was experiencing extreme levels of persecution. They were not just dying normal deaths or tragic deaths by disease and, and whatever else. They were dying for the cause of Christ. They were being put to death for what they believed. And so the church writes to Paul, and they say, Paul, you gave us this message about Jesus. It changed our life, but we're still struggling because we're watching our friends die, and we feel terrible. And Paul writes back, and he says, okay, I want to remind you about something. I don't want you to be uninformed about this, that those of you who have died, yes, grieve, but we do not grieve as others who do not have, what's the last word of verse 13? Hope. Okay, implication, we grieve. We grieve. As Christians, we do not walk around with our nose in the air, oblivious to the reality that life hurts. 
Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus. He knows that he's going to raise him from the dead. He knows what he's going to do from the beginning. It's not, a, it's not a shock to him. But when he gets to the tomb, he sees Mary and Martha, and they're weeping for their brother who has died. And there's a beautiful passage. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It is in John chapter 11, verse 35. And when Jesus saw Mary and Martha crying, the Bible says Jesus wept. He was familiar with our grief. He has walked in our shoes. And let me tell you, the hope here is that there's no pain that you will ever feel that Jesus has not first felt. Have you been rejected? He felt that. Have you been scorned? He felt that one. Have you been vilified? He's, he's felt that. Have you lost a loved one? You ever think about this? That when Jesus was 12, his father and mother were searching for him in the temple. When Jesus was doing his public ministry at age 30, his father had already died. He knew what it was like to lose a parent. And then when Lazarus dies, he knows what it's like to lose a friend. And even though he knew that he was the resurrection and the life, even though he knew that, that Lazarus was about five seconds away from rising again, he still wept. And I always feel bad for Lazarus in that story. Do you know, we always celebrate that, but man, Lazarus had to go and die all over again. Come on, how many of you know Lazarus was like, really? You did this for me? I got to do this again? <laughs> anyway, but nonetheless, <laughs> we grieve, church. I, I want to say something that's going to hurt. It's going gonna, it's gonna to pinch a little bit. You got a lot of disappointment to look forward to. And if you're young, you got a boatload of death to look forward to. You know, Sean Connery died. And I was thinking about it. I was like, wow, I, I love Sean Connery. And I, and I know he was old, and he lived a long life, and a very productive life, and a very blessed life. But I, I'm realizing this now in my mid-40s that a lot of the people who were here when I got here are gone. And that includes relatives and famous people and infamous people, all that. And it's funny, like, you just, the older you get, you thought, they died? And, and this is the reality of life. We're going to grieve. We're going to face hardship. We're going to be disappointed with this life. Life is hard. We will grieve. We don't fake supernatural happiness. We don't act like everything is peachy. That's, that's ridiculous. And, and listen to this very carefully. Christians do not embrace mystical detachment from the pains of life. Maybe you've heard that. That Christians, if we're sad, something's wrong with our faith. And we need to turn that frown upside down. Or we're not being good Christians. Let me just, let me just release you from that burden. Of course you will grieve. Of course you will be upset. If you want a religion that teaches you to detach from the problems of life, there's a religion for you. It's called Buddhism. We are not Buddhists. We are Christians. We worship a Savior who came and dwelt among us, who walked with us, who went through life with us, who was hated and vilified and rejected and betrayed. 
He's been there. He's done that. He's experienced the pains you've experienced, the pains I've experienced, even more so. And yet, through it all, he knew that his father was going to use all of his pains for the good of saving our souls from eternal sadness. We grieve, but we grieve hopefully. So uh, this applies to the political climate. Those of you who are here and you're grieving. You're grieving because your guy lost, okay? But you grieve hopefully. And, and those of you who feel joy over what has happened, well, it's just a matter of time before another election happens and then you're grieving. You know, it just goes like that. So listen, it's not about what you feel right now. It's about what you know. How you think will affect how you feel. Lift up your eyes from the present world and set them on Christ who is Lord of all and in charge of the beginning and the end. Verse 16 and 15 and 16, Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And it's like when Paul says, I say this by a word from the Lord, I mean, he's saying, I want to up the ante on what I'm about to say here. This is important. This is truer than anything, he says, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's, there's something's ha- going to happen, there's a resurrection coming. The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. These are all military terms. Cry of command, military. Trumpets sounded the alarm for the military to get ready in ancient Israel. And then the archangel, not just an angel, archangel. Whenever an archangel shows up in the Bible, it, ins- it infers military action. That when Jesus returns, he, he came the first time as a baby, meek and mild. And the biggest lie we ever sing to ourselves is, no crying he makes. He cried. <laughs> but he came quietly. He came subtly. He came silently in the back side of a desert. That was the first coming. Let me just tell you something. His second coming is going to be nothing like that. His second coming is going to be military action from heaven. He's not coming kindly. He's not coming nicely. He's not coming, um, uh, you know, subtly. He's coming boldly and strong, and he's going to put to death sin and shame. He's going to put to death guilt. He's going to put to death his enemies and every person who has hurt his people from the day he rose until the day he comes again. Every person that has hurt his people is going to be judged and he will reign on this earth forever. And, and so Paul says, this is our hope. We might grieve now, but we are going to be glad later. And then verse 17, he gives us a little reminder that we who are alive and are left will be, say the next two words, everybody, caught up. Okay, the word is harpizo in the Greek, but it was translated into Latin into this word, caught up, rapturo. Rapturo. That was the Latin translation of that verse, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. We get a modern biblical doctrine from that Latin word called the rapture. That's how we get rapture. We who are alive 
and remain will be caught up, rapture, harpizoed, up into the air with the risen saints to meet the Lord. And so we will always be with the Lord. If you're taking notes in the paper version, please underline. And so we will always be with the Lord. Because that's what the end times is about. It's not about the dates and times. It's not about what, uh, what, what's going to be my reward in heaven. I gave up a lot, so I should get a lot, right? It's not going to be about that. The best thing about heaven is that God is there. The best thing about the afterlife is that you are with God in perfect harmony with God as you are made to be. And sin has robbed you of that, but Jesus is going to put away sin so that you can live in perfect harmony with your creator for all eternity. And I'm going to tell you something, no possession on this earth, no love on this earth, no family member on this earth can compare with the blessing of being in the presence of Jesus. So I want you to write this down. The Christian's future is not about a place, it's about the presence of God. It's about his presence. That's our hope. C.S. Lewis famously said this about our desires in this world. That He said this, that if, if I find in myself a desire in my heart that nothing in this world can satisfy me, that nothing in this world can satisfy, it probably hints at the reality that I am made for another world. It's, it's amazing. I mean, people turn to drugs, they'll turn to alcohol, they'll turn to um, social media, they'll turn to being followed and liked and loved, they'll turn to accomplishment, achievement, their careers, they'll make a God out of anything, their kids, their grandkids, their money situation, their 401ks, their whatever, and we, and we, and we think, if I just get enough, if I just get enough, and, I just, and people have got all that, and they're still not happy, they're still not satisfied, they still don't have enough, because we're not made to Consume, consume, consume everything on this earth. We are made to live in the presence of God. Uh, we are, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And this is our hope. And, and so he says in verse 17, we'll always be with the Lord. And then verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, I love this command. This is a command from Scripture. Let me just ask you a question. I don't want to make you feel guilty, but, but let me just ask you a question. In the midst of all of the political diatribe and all the political argument that we've gone through and all the argument about COVID and all the argument about racism and all the argument about all the things that we've talked about for 2020, let me ask you this. Had, has there been a moment in which you have actually reminded another Christian that this world is not our home? I hope that's what comes out of you on a regular basis when you're, when you're talking to a fellow Christian and they're getting so worked up about this and you're like, wait a second, remember that we are not of this world, that we are called out of this world and there is a world to come where we will feel at home. Encourage one another with these words. This is, goes back to small group. If you're not a small group, you can't encourage anybody because you don't know anybody. <laughs> Some of you are in a small group and you're very discouraged in life. You're not in a small group because you have no Christian friends who will encourage you with the return of Christ. All right, let's turn the page into chapter 5 because now we're going to talk about what Paul needs to talk about for them, which also applies to us because it's a bit of a corrective for the Thessalonians and it's a corrective for us. Chapter 5, verse 1, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
And where do we get that? We get that from Matthew 24. Remember, we had talked about that last week. Jesus is coming like a thief. You don't know when the thief is coming. The thief comes when you are not aware. <laughs> Paul writes this to the Thessalonians. Do you know why? He says this. He says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. What, what's the implication here? That the Thessalonians were a lot like 21st century Christians. What, what day is he coming? What, what day? <laughs> right? When's the rapture? Surely it's, it's, not, it's any moment now, pastor, right? No setting dates. Jesus says in Matthew 24, don't set dates. He rises from the dead. And the disciples are like, are you going to restore the Israelite kingdom now? And he says, no setting dates. John, John chapter 21. And then, in verse, and then in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonians are like, I think we figured out the date. And Paul says, no setting dates. And yet that command from Scripture has been perhaps the most ignored command ever. Because we just can't help ourselves setting dates. It was a few years ago when there was that guy taking out billboards all across America. I forget what his name was, but he was taking out billboards all across America. You know, and it was, I think it was May 26, 2012. Came and went, didn't happen. Before him, it was the guy in 1993. 93 reasons why Jesus will return to 93. It didn't happen in 93, so he wrote another book. 94 reasons why Jesus will return to 94. This is nothing new. There are, there are two categories of Christian books through which a Christian author can make a boatload of cash. Two categories of Christian books. Please be aware of this. Number one, marriage books. Marriage books fly off the shelf at Christian bookstores, and they're all bought by women. Hate to burst your bubble, ladies, but dudes don't want to read those books. But authors know <laughs> that you're suckers for them. So you buy them, you buy them, you buy them. And then the other category is end times prophecy. These books fly off the shelves of Christian bookstores because everybody wants to know when, the when, 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 when. Oh, oh, this guy knows the date. Oh, yeah, what's the date? No setting dates. And it doesn't stop us from hypothesizing. So I went on this website. I thought about this website. It's hilarious. If you go to um, raptureready.com, <laughs> they have a rapture index. <laughs> Where based on all of these activities, unemployment, Satanism, occult, false Christ, uh, ecumenism, globalism, tri you know, whatever, earthquakes, volcanoes, they, they, they rate them and then they give you a, a number of, 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 of what level are we in prophecy terms right now. And there's another little thing to the side, I want to put the next slide up, that tells us what this is about. You could say the rapture index is a Dow Jones industrial average of end time activity. Okay, so 100 and below, slow prophetic activity. 100 to 130, moderate prophetic activity. 130 to 160, heavy prophetic activity. Above 160, fasten your seatbelts. I kid you not, this is, this is a real thing. And so, you know, 160, I, I think if you remember in the previous picture, it was at 180. That was the day before the election, okay, so things ramping up, right, and, and it's just kind of hilarious, and I checked out these dates, all-time high was 189 October 10th, 2016, I looked it up, nothing happened, nothing, I don't know why it was 2016, but anyway, 
and then December 12, 1993, all-time low. I don't know, but here's the deal. It doesn't stop us. The Bible repeatedly says no setting dates, but it doesn't stop us. And so we have these views, too. We have these people mapping it out. You ever see this? You were, I was raised on this stuff. Maps. And pastor would have this long map on the stage of when things were going to happen. And then he would unpack all the views and Revelation and Daniel and First Thessalonians 4 and 5. And, and so I want to bring you through them. This is a, this is a fast-tracking you through the rapture views. Number one is the pre-trib classical, pre-trib rapture view. So here we are. Jesus rose again. Here we are. We're going to be caught up into the year. There's going to be tribulation three and a half years for the rest of the world. Bad three and a half years after that. And then we're going to be up with Jesus, like party, hardy up there with Jesus. And then we return, Armageddon, Millennium, Final Day, Satan, lose Second Resurrection, Great White Throne. But that's just one view. There's another view. It's called the post-tribulation rapture, in which Jesus rises again, and then the church agent, here we are, and bad news for you, we're going through the tribulation, and it's going to really be stinky, and then we're going to be caught up when Jesus returns, and come back, and millennium is going to happen, final day, Satan, lose, second resurrection, great race, but there's another view called the pre-wrath view, this is where we are, church age, and then Daniel's 70 week begins at some point, there's about a year, three and a half year period, there's a fifth seal from Revelation, midpoint of the tribulation, the rapture happens, then it gets really bad with cosmic science, and the blood and the guts and everything else falling all over the world. And the 70th week happens of Daniel's chapter 11 and 30 days happen. Jesus returns, final day, Satan, lose second resurrection, great return judgment. But that's just the beginning because then there are millennial views, pre-millennial view, in which we are in the church age and we are caught up and then we return with Jesus after the tribulation and we're in the millennial year, reign of Christ for a thousand years and then Satan is loose, Armageddon, second resurrection, great return judgment. But there's also a post-millennial view of how Jesus is going to come back. Church age, millennium, happens when we make it happen through political posturing and making the kingdom come on this earth. And then when we do enough, then Jesus says, okay, fine, now I will return and there will be Armageddon, final day, Satan, lose second great resurrection, great return judgment. But there's another view called the amillennial view of the resurrection in which we are in the church age. And this is actually a figurative view of the millennium. We are now in the millennium. Woohoo! Who knew? But here we are in the millennium. And then eventually Jesus comes back caught up. Jesus returns, Armageddon, Final day, second resurrection, great right throne judgment. But there's another view that I like more than anything. It's called the pan-tribulation millennial view. Church age, Jesus is coming, and everything is going to pan out. So wake the heck up is what I say to you. It doesn't matter what your view. It matters that it's going to happen. <laughs> oh, I'm tired. No setting dates. Just be ready. Point number two, the, the return of Jesus means we engage with the world discriminately. We engage with the world discriminately. We, aren't, we are not aloof to this world. This world is a reality. We can't escape it. So here's what Paul says. In verse 3, he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day will not surprise you like a thief. Okay, I got a question on the deep end this past Tuesday. It's very relevant to what I'm talking about today. And the question was, why do we always assume that it's going to be so bad? Oh, I'm sorry. Why do we always assume that Jesus' return is going to happen now? When times have been worse in the past, you know, such as the bubonic plague, which killed about one-third of Europe, 
the plagues of 2nd and 3rd century Rome. There was a civil war in this country for all of our angling right now. There was a civil war. So it's been worse before. Okay, well, I got news for the person who asked that question. Look what Paul says. He says people are going to be saying peace and safety. And then, sudden destruction. Now, the interesting thing about that phrase, people are going to be saying there is peace and security. That phrase was a Roman Empire political statement. Let me say that again. That phrase was a Roman Empire political statement. So whenever an emperor would conquer another plot of land or another people group, he would say peace and security. He would send this peace and security at the hand of Augustus, at the hand of Caesar. It was a political message. Now, here's what Paul is saying. There's going to be endless people throughout human history who will promise you that they will provide peace for you through political means. And it's going to, a lot of people are going to fall for it. A lot of people are going to think that's, that's the answer. We, we just, just recently, this last election, we need someone to save the soul of America. Like, it's kind of alarming to me when our political discourse turns into the savior discourse. Like, that's, we got too far there. There's one savior. There's one who can truly offer us peace and security. Jesus says, while the world falls for this, suddenly destruction will come upon them. And notice the phrase, and they will not, what? Escape. The Bible doesn't say that all hell is going to be breaking loose when Jesus returns. It, it, it might be bad, but there's always going to be somebody saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. By the way, in Jeremiah's day, when Nebuchadnezzar was breathing down the necks of the Israelites and coming to invade them and drag them off into exile, there were scores of prophets who were willing to tell God's people, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And there was one prophet named Jeremiah who was saying, you better repent because it's not going to be okay. And I dare you to name one of those false prophets. We don't know who they are. But Jeremiah and his writings are in the Bible. Why are you pressing in on this, Pastor? Because we have got to be engaging with the world discriminately. Understand, Christian, that you are being culturefied Every second of the day. Every second of the day, you're being farmed and influenced. Constant media, constant social media, constant entertainment options. We are either being conformed by the news of this world or transformed by the good news of the world to come. That's the point. And in, in, what I'm saying is get yourself some discernment, Christians. 
Don't just watch the news. Listen to God. You say, Pastor, I'm not you. I don't have that kind of relationship with God. Yes, you do. You have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is in you. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, he will teach you all things. I just want to let you know that being on the stage does not give me a greater level of the Holy Spirit than you. Christian, you have the Holy Spirit to guide you and teach you about the world so that when you see the news or you hear the opinions or you watch the politics or you watch what's going to happen in the future, you can discern it and live rightly because you know what's really true about the news. Engage the world discriminately. And Paul says to them in verse 4, you are not in darkness as though that day should surprise you. Number three, the return of Christ means that we pattern our lives expectantly. We pattern our lives expectantly. Jesus is coming. And we, we live like it's true. That at any moment, Jesus could come again. It might not be. At this moment, it could be a hundred years from now, but we live with expectation that it could. He says uh, in verse 6, let us not sleep. This, this is what keeps us awake. Jesus could come, as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. The, the word be sober means to keep your life under control. It's not just about not being drunk. The word literally means to have a control over your being. Okay, so let me pastor you through this. We don't fall apart at every news report. We don't, we don't flip out when life doesn't go our way momentarily. We don't, we don't fall to pieces because we go through a hardship or a loss or something like that because we know that he's coming back and every wrong will be made right. So we can have control over our lives. It's like having a goal. Like, think of the return of Jesus. Like having a goal. How many know that a goal will change your present? Having a goal in the future will change how you live in the present. You know what I'm talking about? Like, think about it this way. A wedding day. A wedding. Like, when you get engaged, everything changes. Now you have to think about what you're eating because you want to fit into the dress or the tux, right? If you, hadn't, if you didn't have the wedding day, you'd be eating Cheetos at 10 p.m., watching reruns of Friends for the 500th time. But because you have the wedding now, it's less Friends and Cheetos, more treadmill and salad. You guard what you eat. At the wedding, you think about, well, spending has to be curbed because we have to afford the wedding. Or, or, or you think about, you know, your relationships now. When you, when you set a date for a wedding, now you have to think about, okay, who are we going to invite in a relationship? You start to have to, listen, think about this. When, when you have a wedding, you have to discern who are, who are my real friends. Like, who are we going to invite and who are we going to say, oh, I forgot to invite you. <laughs> my point is, 
that the goal changes your lifestyle. The goal changes your lifestyle. Expect, if you're expecting Christ to return, it should change your lifestyle. Because the Bible calls the return of Christ the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's actually a wedding day. So let me go through this list again. How are you eating? How is your diet? Your spiritual diet. Are you feeding on the word of God? Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Are you eating good food? Or is it romance novels? And Netflix and chilling? I mean, I have some junk food, but I put good food. Good food in. And then let's talk about money. Like, you got to change your money situation. Matthew 6, 19. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. 1 Timothy 6, 18. Be, do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for who? When we do good here, it gets stored up there. Rewards are waiting for those who give to the kingdom of heaven. Matthew, Matthew 25, 21. Master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You and faithful over little, I will set you over much. What I'm saying is there is a recompense coming for those who are expecting the return of Christ. There's, there, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians where it says that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be saved as those saved through fire. Like, they're not really investing in the kingdom. They're just kind of like walking, sleepwalking through it. They're just kind of sleepwalking. Like, all right, I go to church, fine. Yeah, okay. They're just kind of sleepwalking. Like, wake up and do something. I, I don't want to just be, I don't want to be singed on the way in. Anybody with me? I mean, like, well, that was close. Thank you, Jesus. Like, I was all, this close to hell. I barely made it. Thank you. Like, no, I don't want, I I want to be marching with my chest out and my shoulders back, waiting for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in the joy of heaven. And, and, and by the way, we have this faulty notion that it's only joy and reward up there and nothing down here. Wrong. There's earthly reward for faithfulness here. Now, I'm telling you, Jesus said, no one who gives up father, mother, brother, sisters, houses, children, parents, whatever, for me and for the sake of the kingdom will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this age and in the age to come. I am a living, breathing example that tithing works. Tithing works. It works tremendous. My wife and I tithe on the gross of our income. We give 10%. You say, why the gross? That's not what you walk away with. Because God comes before the government. I give to God before the government comes and takes. <laughs> and by the way, when I give to God first, I get to tell the government, not so much. <laughs> Tax deduction. Hallelujah, amen, somebody, right? And I am a living, breathing example that, that, that God takes that 90% and multiplies it and blesses it. I'm telling you, not just your money, but your talents and your resources and your family. 
One of the most proudest moments of my life was when my daughter got her first job and I was scanning through the giving list as I regularly do. <laughs> Dear friends of Waters Church, and I saw Olivia Hatch and I had never even told her to tithe. What a blessing. And she does this till this day. I don't think there's a greater blessing in life than having children who fear the Lord. How, how did that happen? From my, my wife and I will tell you, we are not good parents. <laughs> we are winging it. We, we make mistakes all the time. But here's what we, when we make mistakes, we tell our children we made a mistake. We need Jesus, just like you. And I'm telling you, this, this is how you have to change. To expect the return of Christ is to change your life. And then number four, we battle in the spirit optimistically. Now, don't miss this point. I know it's the last point intended to check out. This one's big. Paul says in verse 8, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. That's a an article of weaponry. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Weaponry. Military theme. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we awake or sleep, we might live in him. Paul is making one thing patently clear to the, first, to the Thessalonian church and to us as well. If we're going to expect and anticipate the return of Christ, we, have bet, we had better be ready for battle. It is a battle to belong to Jesus. It is a battle to believe. You are in a warfare from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. Some days are really easy, but there's going to be some hard days. And notice that he says breastplate and helmet, meaning what? The battle in my life is for two things. My heart, breastplate, and my mind, helmet. What's going in here, and what are you letting reside down here? Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. We've got to guard this thing. The scripture says, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Whatever is noble, excellent, praiseworthy, true, think on these things. Some of you, I'm telling you, I just got to say this, got to say this, you got to hear it again and again and again. Some of you got to learn how to shut this sucker off. Put it in another room and go and get alone with your father. And you don't have to mouth empty words. He doesn't want empty words. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to put a pretense up and act like you're spiritual. You just have to sit in the quietness of your father's presence and just let him give you rest and peace and quiet. There's a battle going on and we have to be ready and we have to fight and we have to protect ourselves for Jesus is returning. The best is yet to come. I'm excited for that. Paul ends by saying, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you were doing.